Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath, and I'm grateful to all of you for joining us today. Uh, we're going to put up a slide with a phone number for those of you who have already logged in by web and need another minute to dial in for the voice or the sound part of it. Uh, as I said before, my name is Manish Rath, and I'm a partner here at the law firm Keller and Hackman LLP here in Washington, D.C., uh, and I'm joined by my colleague, Javaneh Nakumaram. I'm very fortunate to have Javaneh with me today. Javaneh, welcome. Thank you for having me, Manish. So as with uh, so many of you, we are producing this episode of the OSHA 3030 uh, all by working remotely uh, together with our, our colleague and producer, uh, Jessica. So thank you, for Jessica, for all the work you've done. Uh, as we begin, we know that the topic today, coronavirus, uh, legal-related issues uh, under the, the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, as well as a host of related agencies, uh, is, is an issue that is rapidly evolving. We did this as our topic last month, and indeed, a lot of what we covered has evolved since then, uh, and much of what we talk about today will probably evolve. Maybe some of it become outdated. So, so just to be clear, this is uh, a an overview of some of the key points that that we think you ought to know about when dealing with coronavirus-related areas of law, and and that it's it's uh, relevant to the time at which it's published. Uh, this program is is published April twenty second into twenty twenty. And it's critical that when you're applying anything that we're talking about today, that you, you look into the issues that we're talking about for yourself, you consult with legal counsel, and uh, continue to work to stay up to date as, as anything develops. Uh, we are now coming close to wrapping up eight years of producing the OSHA 3030, uh, an accomplishment that I'm very happy about and and. All of our prior episodes are libraried on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. Check them out. Many of them, even going back to our first year, are very timely, still very relevant, and uh, educational for those of you who have time and interest now that you're perhaps working from home. Maybe some of you have a little extra time to go back and catch some of those old episodes. We are also, by the way, reprising for the past two or three years all of our episodes as a podcast. So you are welcome to catch, subscribe to the OSHA 3030 on your favorite podcast uh, streaming um, app, such as Apple's podcast or uh, SoundCloud or we're even now on Spotify. So, so check us out there. And if you subscribe, don't forget to like or rate the OSHA 3030 as well so that it becomes more searchable by your colleagues. Well, with that said, Javane, why don't I start by talking about what we're going to talk about today, coronavirus-related uh, issues for employers and the guidances that have been issued uh, by OSHA, by the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the National Labor Relations Board, Centers for Disease Control, the U.S. FDA, and Environmental Protection Agency. Javane, as you know, those are two areas which our firm, Keller and Heckman, does a lot of work. Uh, one of the leading and largest uh, practice groups anywhere in the country for uh, FDA work as well as free PA. Uh, we're going to uh, quickly discuss what's happening at the states as an overview, certainly not a state-by-state -state, uh, 
type of overview in this 30 minutes. Uh, anything new from the White House? Uh, there's some workers' compensation issues. And finally, as always, we will wrap up with a summary of some key takeaway items for you, uh, what we think employers should do in light of some of these developments. So why don't we start off by talking about the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, the agency whose guidance, rulemaking, and related statutory developments gave this program its namesake. Uh, the, the agency issued a, an enforcement discretion uh, policy on April 16th. That came out on April 16th, and it essentially was a document released to its area directors that informed them to exercise discretion when engaged in enforcement activity against employers. Now, I'll be brief about this. Uh, I don't think that there's a lot that's concrete here that employers can take to the bank. But what it essentially says to area directors is when you're engaged in enforcement uh, efforts against employers around the country, be mindful that when, when we're talking about anything that could have been impacted by the, by the pandemic, to consider what steps employers have taken to demonstrate good faith efforts to comply with the standards. Let me just give you an example. When you talk about powered industrial trucks and recertification, you may find difficulty in finding vendors who can come to your site. Your establishment may have visitation prohibitions that would prohibit any such uh, instructors or certification uh, staff to come onto your site. And so, so the, the guidance to the area directors is taken into consideration, has the employer found ways to manage uh, these kinds of obstacles and still try and achieve some semblance of a good faith effort to, to achieve safety and health in the workplace in spite of any uh, obstacles that it has uh, undertaken or has faced in light of the pandemic. So that's the enforcement discretion policy. Not Again, not a lot of certainty with respect to that standard, but it, it does give you an opportunity. If you have taken some good faith steps, it's, it's giving you some opportunity to, to uh, create a, a, a defense that, that you've done the best you could given circumstances. Uh, Chavonet, right. in addition to, to the enforcement discretion policy, as I've described, there have been some other guidances. Right. So OSHA has also released a number of guidance documents that address respirators specifically. And these guidance documents are meant to address the shortage of N95s uh, throughout the country and allow employers to have some flexibility in terms of what types of respirators can be used in the workplace. So there are four different guidances that have been released that addresses uh, these issues. So the first one, um, OSHA issued temporary enforcement guidance for the healthcare industry for respiratory protection. So the focus on this was fit testing. In this guidance, OSHA allows healthcare providers uh, to provide workers with respirators of equal or higher protection uh, or powered air purifying respirators. Also, healthcare providers can change the method of fit testing from a destructive method to a non-destructive method, meaning a qualitative method. And also, OSHA will exercise enforcement discretion concerning annual fit testing requirements so long as the employer makes a good faith effort to comply, um, uses a NIOSH certified respirator, and performs initial fit testing and seal checks. So, um, OSHA then expanded this policy in, a, in its next guidance uh, for healthcare workers to apply to all industries. 
And I know, uh, Javne, we do a little bit of work in healthcare space, but but not uh, as much as we do in other areas. But but it's important to note that healthcare workers may appear in manufacturing or in other work settings, and not just at a uh, healthcare provider type establishment. Right, that's a good point. Um, so OSHA took the step after issuing this guidance to expand this policy and make it apply to all industries. OSHA then released more detailed enforcement guidance for respiratory protection in light of the N95 national shortage. So this guidance essentially encourages employers to use alternatives to respirators when possible, like engineering controls, work practices, and administrative controls. And if respiratory protection must be used, then employers can consider um, other types of respirators that are equal or greater protection compared to N95s. And um, if alternative respirators are not available or if they create additional hazards, then um, the employer, if the employer shows a good faith effort to acquire respirators, OSHA will exercise enforcement discretion for employers to allow them to extend the use or reuse of N95s that are past their manufacturer's recommended shelf life. So you can use um, or you can reuse respirators as long as the structural integrity is not compromised and you can extend them past their shelf life uh, also if they are not damaged. So um, you still have to uh, use user seal checks. Javanay, real quickly, uh, can we, uh, on, on April 13th, OSHA also issued its own enforcement uh, response plan related to coronavirus for its own uh, compliance, safety, and health officers. Can we quickly uh, talk about that for a moment? Yes. And so uh, just last week, OSHA released an interim enforcement response plan that gives direction to area officers on how to handle inspections going forward, because obviously with stay-at-home orders and public health concerns, there are risks for inspectors to come in and respond to every complaint. So the policy basically says that compliance, safety, and health officers are co-shows. They won't be doing on-site inspections unless certain conditions are met, like there's a fatality or the complaint alleges an unprotected exposure to COVID-19 for workers in a very hot, with a, in an area with a very high risk of transmission. So only under certain some circumstances will field officers go in. Um, in the meantime, uh, area offices will use non-formal procedures to investigate uh, alleged hazards by sending letters. And so they'll be corresponding electronically. But if the employer doesn't respond to these inquiries, then uh, inspectors will come in in person. Um, also, uh, the guidance explains how COSHOs can issue general duty clause violations. And that's important because it shows that OSHA believes in some cases a general duty clause violation can exist when employees are not protected from the hazard of contracting coronavirus. And then finally, the guidance provides some information about record keeping. As a reminder, um, employers are obligated to record illnesses uh, that are work-related and could result, and that result in a hospitalization or days away from work or what they call a recordable event. So you're required to record COVID-19 cases if they meet these requirements. But OSHA has stated now that it will not be enforcing the record-keeping regulations on employers who make work-relatedness determinations because that could be difficult to determine if the person contracted coronavirus at work or not. So they're going to exercise discretion in this area where, um, except where there is objective evidence that the COVID-19 case may be work-related and that the evidence was reasonably available to the employer. So, 
that covers the Occupational Safety and Health Administration in a, uh, I'd say, a flyby. But one thing I'd also add is that the the uh, original interpretation or interim guidance that they've issued is still uh, in effect. And one of the primary features of it is that it notes that employers should follow the guidances of the Centers for Disease Control when trying to manage the uh, transmission of coronavirus in their workplaces. So it's really imperative that employers follow the the Centers for Disease Control guidances and, and they are constantly uh, developing as uh, as they go as well. Uh, let's talk about the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission because a lot of folk have asked us, Monish, we, we want to do temperature checks or Monish, we want to ask basic questions about symptoms or where have you traveled. Uh, things like that, what, what other medical exam type uh, inquiries, and how does that impact uh, our ability to comply with discrimination laws under the uh, U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission's uh, portfolio of statutes, especially the Americans with Disabilities Act, which defines a lot of these kinds of activities as a medical exam. Well, real briefly, on April 9th, uh, the the agency issued a, a guidance called What You Should Know related to corona, the coronavirus pandemic. And it's essentially updating what they had said back in, uh, I think it was 2009 maybe, uh, relating to uh, pandemics generally uh, as an outgrowth of the SARS out, uh, outbreak uh, at that time. And essentially it says to employers that medical inquiries and temperature checks under pandemic circumstances like the coronavirus are permitted uh, because the CDC believes that that's a good practice. The same goes for uh, an employer's rights to require an employee to stay at home if the employee is either a positive case, confirmed positive case, or a probable positive case. And, uh, and then finally, the, the Americans with Disabilities Act has always permitted an employer to require a certificate for fitness to return to duty, and an employer may still require that at this stage. Practically speaking, what we're finding is that employers uh, are having trouble with employees who can't get access to health care given the shortage or the prioritization that a lot of healthcare care uh, workers are forced to to engage in. And so, so I would encourage employers to follow the Centers for Disease Control's return to work guidelines, which we'll discuss in a minute. Uh, but that, that in a nutshell is the April 9th uh, EEOC publication. Uh, real quickly, Javani, can you talk to us about the National Labor Relations Board's guidance? Right, we just have a quick update on the NLRB. So due to COVID-19, the NLRB approved the suspension of all representation elections, which includes mail ballot elections, for a two-week period between March 19th and April 3rd. Uh, the board thought this was necessary due to safety reasons and given closures of several of their offices and limited operations. Uh, however, the NLRB has resumed conducting elections as of April 6th. Yeah, a lot of people thought that they might extend that uh, because mm -hmm. a lot of agencies have issued some interim guidance and local authorities have issued interim guidance and then continue to extend it through April. Not the case. It's important to you, for you all to know, not the case for the National Labor Relations Board with respect to uh, representation elections. Okay. So that brings right. us around to the Centers for Disease Control. I think maybe one of the principal uh, 
issues that concern employers is how to clean and disinfect a workplace, particularly after it's come to their attention that there was a confirmed positive case, for example, in the workplace, then what do they do to make sure that, that the workplace and common contact services are, are uh, disinfected and properly cleaned for, for the remaining workforce? That's right. Um, the CDC gives guidance on specifically when to close off a work area after a case has been discovered. Uh, they recommend 24 hours or as long as practical before sending uh, people in to clean, and that determination should be done based on a number of factors like the size of the room and the ventilation system in the room. Uh, the guidance also offers uh, information about how cleaning staff should clean and disinfect all areas that uh, the person was in, such as bathrooms, common areas, and obviously the areas that they worked. Um, and I think an important part of the guidance is how to properly clean the work area. Uh, the CDC discusses that EPA-registered disinfectants are effective to use. Uh, however, the directions for use should be followed, uh, especially regarding contact time and PPE. Uh, they also provide uh, specific cleaning instructions for all types of surfaces, including electronics and linens and uh, non-porous surfaces. So that's all important to look at. Um, and then finally, the CDC explains how cleaning staff should wear gowns and gloves during cleaning and to make sure that they wash their hands often, uh, including after they remove their gloves. And so this is a, a snapshot. There's a lot of information in here, but it is very helpful guidance for employers who uh, if, who discover that employees in a work area either are symptomatic or have contracted coronavirus and how to properly clean. Other, there are uh, several guidances by the CDC that are relevant to employers uh, under the uh, heading of, of interim guidance for businesses. Um, some of the other statements that the CDC has issued relates to uh, proper stocking of, of personal protective equipment and cleaning supplies, uh, proper ventilation of the workplace, uh, proper ventilation after there's a probable or confirmed case, uh, opening up uh, windows, letting fresh air come through where possible. There are some industries where that is not possible. I understand that. There are others where it's possible and, and uh, should be done. Uh, but in a lot of, a lot of uh, discussion on CDC websites about social distancing activities that employers can engage in and should engage in, I should say, uh, including requiring employer employees to notify a supervisor when they are symptomatic and to stay at home, uh, permitting telework where possible, uh, implementing liberal leave policies so that employees can take leave liberally uh, based on symptoms, based on symptoms of family members, caring for family members, uh, et cetera, uh, allowing for flexible hours, uh, staggering shifts, spreading out work into two shifts, uh, separating production lines or separating workstations, creating part employee partitions uh, for food service employees, creating partitions uh, where or or uh, other methods of food delivery from from food workers to other employees, uh, and uh, and informing employees where. Uh, their contact tracing basically uh, informing employees where a coworker might have had a possible exposure or a confirmed case or a probable case. Uh, it's also important to engage in education programming for employees where they know they're educated and trained on how, uh, what are the various factors for transmission, uh, what protective methods they can use, 
uh, including regular hand washing uh, and cleaning of their their work surfaces and work surfaces that are common to employees of prior shifts or the same shift, uh, training employees on uh, knowing what kind of symptoms they they may uh, uh, that may be related to coronavirus, uh, notifying them how to take their temperature and, and uh, educating them on the value of taking temperature properly, how to use masks that might screen transmission from that employee to other employees, uh, et cetera. All of those uh, kinds of elements can be uh, part of an education program and should be, especially given the, compl the compl claims that we're seeing by employees already emerging. Uh, also, the Centers for Disease Control suggests that employers consider, even if they are in an essential function industry, an essential or critical industry to evaluate what within their operations are essential functions. And so even in a critical industry to evaluate which functions can be postponed or temporarily eliminated, uh, whether what elements of uh, operations can be downsized, uh, and also to communicate with suppliers and uh, downstream uh, customers and other co-located employers to make sure that all of the efforts that we just described above are coordinated with those other employers. Those are all part of CDC guidelines. Uh, it's also important to note that one of the biggest questions on employers' minds is one that the Centers for Disease Control has issued a guidance on, which is uh, return to work. So, so this goes to the question, I have an employee with a confirmed positive case or a probable case. They've been sent home. When are they eligible for returning to the workplace. The Centers for Disease Control issued a guidance that suggests that an employee may return to work based on a set of criteria, uh, which is more or less like a decision tree. If you're dealing with an employee who's tested positive and had symptoms, that employee may return to work without follow-up testing if they have gone a full 72 hours with no symptoms, no temperature, no fever, uh, no cough, and no fever-reducing medications for 72 straight hours. And that same employee has seen improvement in any respiratory symptoms, and uh, it has been seven days since the first presentation of symptoms. So it has to be both the transpiring of seven days since the symptoms first started and, in addition, 72 hours without any fever or temperature or other symptoms without the aid of fever-reducing medications. That is a secondary, uh, in preference, that is a secondary method of allowing or determining whether an employee is ready to return to work. Clearly, the primary preference would be testing. If an employee can go through testing and get a confirmed negative test results, and there is a resolution of fever or temperature without fever-reducing medication, and an improvement of uh, respiratory symptoms, and the employee has taken a negative test and then another negative test at least 24 hours apart, two negative tests at least 24 hours apart, that would be the preferred method by which an employer can determine that an employee is ready to return to work. Now, that leaves one other possibility. There are some people who are tested positive but asymptomatic. Uh, in that case, employees may return to work if it's been seven days since their first positive test. Uh, 
and no subsequent uh, illness during that seven-day elimination period, and they continue to remain asymptomatic for an additional three, uh, it will continue to remain asymptomatic for that seven-day period. Then when they return to work, uh, the employer should require that for an additional three days, they maintain six feet distancing from any other employee uh, and wear a face mask. And if that's not achievable, then to stay at home for an additional three days. So that's the CDC's guidance on return to work. Chavane, the Food and Drug Administration and the uh, Alcohol, uh, Tobacco, Tax, and Trade Bureau have also uh, issued guidances in the past month since we've all reconvened uh, since the last OSHA 3030. Right, and these all relate to hand sanitizers. So FDA has issued guidance permitting entities that are not currently registered drug manufacturers to register as over-the-counter drug manufacturers and make alcohol-based hand sanitizers and allow pharmacies and registered outsourcing facilities to compound certain alcohol-based hand sanitizers and allow alcohol production firms to produce alcohol for making hand sanitizers. And then similarly, TTB has waived certain provisions for internal in the internal revenue law with regard to distilled spirits and given certain exemptions and authorizations to distilled spirits permittees so that they can produce ethanol-based hand sanitizers. So this is an effort which to increase the availability of hand sanitizers. Which we know by reading the common media that this has been happening. Some of the spirits yep. manufacturers have been able to produce tons uh, of, of sanitizer as a consequence. Uh, the Environmental right. Protection Agency, Jovenet, an agency yep. uh, before which you practice regularly, as well as many of our colleagues yep. at Kellen Hickman. That's right. So in light of COVID-19, many companies that make disinfectants want to market their products as being effective against COVID-19 when it's present on surfaces. So EPA regulates antimicrobial products such as disinfectants as pesticides under the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, or FIFRA, in order to make these claims on the label. So you have to get EPA clearance to make these types of claims. So because COVID-19 is new, companies have not tested their products to see if they can kill COVID-19. So what EPA is doing is allowing COVID-19 claims if the products are proven to be effective against harder-to-kill viruses or similar viruses. And EPA has uh, posted on its website a list of all disinfectants that have COVID-19 claims. So, so this is something the agency has released to the public. Jovany, thank you. Real quickly, we're going to cover uh, what's going on in the states. Forty-two states at the time we wrote this had issued uh, had issued work-from-home orders with the remaining eight states not uh, having issued work-from-home orders. Uh, they vary. There's great variation. So if you have establishments in, in multiple states, you have to keep track of the state's work-from-home orders with the particular details of, of the scope of the work-from-home order because they will change from state to state. Many of them have identified as an exception uh, those businesses that are critical to relief efforts or a part of the critical infrastructure. Some states have simply said, we're going to go to the federal uh, critical infrastructure list, CISA's list of critical infrastructure businesses, and say that if you're on that list, then you are exempt from the state work from home orders uh, to the extent that you're engaged in, in critical infrastructure operations. Uh, so it's important to, to monitor those. Let me just give you a couple of examples to illustrate the problem. In Kentucky, uh, the, I, I think they did a great job. They, they identified 
uh, a stay-at-home order with an exception to the critical infrastructure bu- uh, businesses, and they, they referred to the federal CISA critical infrastructure list. Uh, but they also exempted all life-sustaining retail to the extent that it's not on CISA's list, then all life-sustaining retail is, is also included. And there's a long list of examples of what they think of as life-sustaining retail. Then they also added uh, other businesses that are not a part of the critical infrastructure list from CISA to the extent that the business needs to, let's say, let's say we run a skeleton crew to maintain basic, minimum basic operations. And examples of that would be having somebody in there to maintain in the, into the establishment to maintain the value of the inventory. I would think an obvious example would be refrigerate, maintaining refrigeration units uh, to preserve the condition of the plant and equipment, keep machinery running so that they don't uh, uh, become de- uh, in a deteriorated state, uh, or to ensure security of the premises or equipment uh, to maintain payroll and benefits operations or IT staff necessary to facilitate telecommuting uh, operations. So I thought that was a, a very thoughtful addition to the critical infrastructure list. Pennsylvania has been, by contrast, a very difficult state for employers to manage, uh, especially those that have operations in multiple states. Let me just give you two examples. Instead of relying on the CISA list for critical infrastructure, they had created their own spreadsheet out of the governor's office, and it was not identical to the CISA list, leaving employers to figure out what the differences were, whether those differences were material to their industries, et cetera. In addition, the Department of Health in Pennsylvania issued an order uh, last Friday and frequently asked questions accompanying that order over this past weekend with differences between uh, that order with respect to a host of issues like uh, how to define probable cases of coronavirus, uh, whether people can take a temperature check, who is enabled to uh, do more than – then observe the work from home order uh, other than just critical infrastructure businesses. Even if you're a critical infrastructure business, what steps do you have to take in order to keep running your establishments in the state of Pennsylvania? And those differences between how they defined what a critical infrastructure business can do and the CDCs uh, are, I think, vexatious for employers to try and sort out, particularly if they're multi-state employers. Chavonet, I tried to go through that as quickly as possible to give you time to quickly cover the White House guidelines, and then we'll see what we can do to wrap up. Right. So President Trump uh, recently released guidelines for opening up America again, which is a three-phased approach for individuals and employers to phase back into opening up their operations. So the guidelines, uh, they break out into phases one, two, three. And so if if your state or area have entered into phase one, meaning that certain gating criteria are met, like a downward trajectory of COVID-19 cases within a two-week period. Uh, It allows for employers to continue to encouraging telework, allowing people to return to work in phases, but um, continuing, you know, minimizing non-essential travel and closing common areas. If, um, If a state is at phase two, meaning that there's no evidence of a rebound and that the gating criteria is met a second time, Employers can resume non-essential travel. And then finally, if you're in phase three, meaning that there's no evidence of a rebound and grading criteria satisfied a third time, then employers can resume unrestricted staffing of work sites. Uh, some ambiguity as to whether or not they still have those restrictions that they say apply to all states. Uh, 
I should point out in wrapping up that the centers, the CDC guidances are so critical for employers to follow in part because employees have already started filing a host of complaints. The Washington Post reported that already thousands of complaints have been filed with OSHA. And remember, that's just in the, the 24 states, uh, to 25 states that OSHA operates in non-state plan states. So there are probably thousands more in those states, essentially alleging failures to comply with CDC guidelines like uh, implementing distancing, uh, forcing employers, employees to work with others who appear to be sick, complaints uh, that employers have failed to issue sufficient masks and gloves, or in, inappropriate sanitization uh, efforts. Uh, in addition, we've all probably, hopefully, been watching uh, for litigation against employers and uh, one notable case against Walmart in Cook County that we've been following when we reviewed the complaint the, the estate of a deceased employee essentially alleged that CDC and OSHA guidelines were not being followed at that Walmart outlet, uh, including failures in cleaning, social distancing, providing PPE, uh, failure to warn employees, and this goes to the education element that I was discussing earlier, or to take other infectious, uh, infectious control prevention measures, uh, or to warn employees of, of symptomatic uh, uh, type uh, symptoms to watch out for. Uh, let's wrap this up quickly. In light of this, what employers should do, we think, include at least uh, three steps that I'll cover real quickly. Document the basis for any designation that you would place on your employer as a critical infrastructure, uh, that, that your establishment is engaged in critical infrastructure. Javane? Right. And um, also, when you implement a policy, it's important to record the date and the source of your information because agencies are updating their guidance almost every week. Information is changing as the situation evolves. And so if you're basing a policy on uh, certain agency guidance, it's helpful to point to the source, point to the date, and stay on top of any updates. Um, and we also recommend continuing to follow the CDC and OSHA's guidance regarding cleaning and disinfecting and PPE. And all of the other issues we talked about as well under the CDC right. guidances. And documents, if you have logistics or supply chain uh, reasons why you need to engage in certain methods for complying with the CDC guidelines, document what those logistics and supply chain reasons are. And document, in order to meet the, uh, the guidance from OSHA about discretionary enforcement, document your good faith efforts to comply with OSHA standards that are otherwise uh, something you can't perfectly comply with during, during the coronavirus pandemic. That's it for today's OSHA 3030. Jovenate, thank you very much for joining me on this program. Uh, you can catch more from our Kellen Heckman uh, Occupational Safety and Health Attorneys on Twitter at Rathmonish. Uh, this program is linked, uh, will be reposted as a podcast, and we're on LinkedIn. Uh, and finally, I'd say we'll be here again next month, May 20th, at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And you please, as I've, I've asked before, when you get the invitation, forward it on to three other people, even if you've already done so for around to three more people. Uh, also, check our website for more information about the Tosca 3030, the Reach 3030, and the FIFRA 3030. Excellent programs. Uh, Javane, again, thank you for joining me. All of you who are listening today, thank you for joining us on today's OSHA 3030. And until we see you again next month, stay safe.